It's time for Backstage Chats with Women in Music, where the stories and voices of female music makers inspire women like you to be dreamers, to be rule breakers, and to unleash your inner rock star. Podcasting from Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world, here's your host, Thea Wood. Welcome to another episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood. Our next guest proves that not all who wander are lost. They may just take an unconventional path. She's Ace of Cups harmonica playing singer-songwriter, true life Mary prankster, and the yogi whom the stars call. Denise Kaufman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Thea. We are thrilled to have you here, and we just want to jump right in because there's so much to discuss. So we're going to start off with what we call the shakedown, a set of six questions that we ask all of our special guests. And are you ready to get started? Absolutely. All right. We'll start with our first question. Who was your first concert? So if you're talking about a big concert, it was the Beatles at the Cow Palace in August of 1964. If you're talking about a little concert, I would say I was about seven or six years old and I heard Pete Seeger play at my local preschool in San Francisco and sat on his lap and heard him sing, I know an old lady who swallows a fly. <laughs> I love it. What was I could it? hear Pete Seeger a lot better than I could hear the Beatles at that big show. All I heard was screaming screams. Oh, yes, yes. And that's what my mother said when she went to see the Beatles, which was her first concert. She said she couldn't hear anything. It was right. just screaming. Let's see here. Next question. What was the first album you bought with your own money? I bought two albums at the same time. And one of them was Seiji Ozawa, who was the conductor of the San Francisco Symphony. But it was a record he made with the Toronto Symphony conducting a piece by a a Japanese composer called November Steps. His name was Takamitsu. And it was this very interesting koto and percussion piece that I was really drawn to. And the other one was Ewan McCall's album of... Welsh mining ballads. I was really into folk music. And Ewan McCall was married to Peggy Seeger. And I loved this music from Wales. And of course, it was all in Welsh and I couldn't understand it. But I used to sing along and just make up what I thought were the closest sounds to the words. How international. Yeah, folk music kind of drew that out early in those days. If you were kind of into folk music, you were listening to, you know, things from wherever you could find them. And he was a seminal person in the folk music scene. Which artist or band is in heavy rotation on your playlists right now? Well, I'm so working on the Ace of Cups music right now that we are the heaviest. And we're also (laughs) working on both our live shows and our second album, which we're working to finish. So I'm working on those songs, but also family. My daughter's a singer, beautiful jazz singer. And she made an album with her dad, my ex, and my grandson is touring Europe right now with his band. So I'm listening to our family music because it makes me feel closer to everyone who's far away. I love the music. But I also listen to a lot of Friends albums, uh, Steve Kimmock. These days I've been listening to Sam Cooke, a lot of Sam Cooke music. And the, the most recent song I just learned because I just wanted to be able to sing it was Sam Cooke's song, The Hem of His Garment. Mm-hmm. about a woman who comes to be healed from, from Jesus and she wants to just touch the hem of his garment and she'll be healed. And it's this beautiful song. Which woman has had the most influence on your career? That's an interesting question because my early mentors were men and that was our Ralph J. Gleason and San Francisco rock critic and writer and founding editor of Downbeat Magazine and Rolling Stone. And then our managers So when I'm looking at what women had an influence 
Buffy St. Marie was one of the first women I ever heard who was both a songwriter and really strong. And I loved that because a lot of the women I listened to, like Joan Baez, they had beautiful voices politically. I really admired them, but they weren't songwriters and they didn't quite resonate with me the way Buffy St. Marie did. There was a woman named Barbara Dane in the early folk music. There was a woman named Judy Henske. And then later, I would say uh, Tina Turner had a big effect on me. Oh, um, she had a big effect on yeah. me too. And I went and she played during the early days of the Asa Cup. She did a one-month residence at the Hungry Eye in San Francisco with Ike and the Ikeettes. And I went almost, I would say I was probably there five nights a week for a month. And sometimes the club was empty. It was an odd venue for them. You know, it was more of a kind of folk bohemian and also a stand-up comedy kind of club. And this was in 1967. Sometimes there would be like four or six people in the club and I would be the one in the front row night after night. You know, later, of course, we learned what a brutal person Ike was, but, you know, I couldn't tell that at the time, but she was so incredible and so were the Ikeettes. And, you know, I was sitting like, you know, six feet away from her and she was a big influence. If you could have dinner with any woman dead or alive, who would it be? Well, the first person I thought of was Harriet Tubman. Ooh. I mean, what it must have taken to have the courage and vision and tenacity and, you know, what to be who she was. But then when I really thought about it, I thought I'd like to have dinner with my mom, who's been gone now since 2000. And she was an activist and, you know, had really transformed in the course of her life because she's a little, little English lady who came to America and marrying my dad. And they ended up in San Francisco. And she was always open to new ideas. And, you know, there was so much going on in the Bay Area during those days. And, you know, she became an activist for everything from pro-choice to the supporting the gay community to certainly civil rights. And she worked with a supporter of Delancey Street, which was one of the big programs there that worked with people with addiction and in prison records and things like that. And, and also with, she was active with Glide Memorial, which works with the homeless population and poverty. She was just, loved the Ace of Cups, but she never got to see the Ace of Cups dissolved. You know, we went our separate ways before what's come around in the last, you know, five or six years. And if I could sit down with her now and show her our new album and let her hear these songs, that would be really thrilling for me. So I hope she's up somewhere enjoying what's going on with our music now. I'm sure she is. I'm sure she's hearing it all and applauding loudly. Our last question is, what is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? <laughs> well, my mom's name is Golda, by the way. So I'm, I'm going to send that stairway to heaven and, and to Golda. Um, <laughs> um, the things that are happening in life now for me are so far beyond what I could have imagined. I've, I've really accomplished I mean, if I, you know, died tomorrow and climbed that stairway, I would already be so grateful. And I think especially this album coming out now is a huge accomplishment that I never thought would happen that has. I think really now what matters to me is to take the opportunity of every day and every opportunity that comes to us and every person who reaches out to us and just be the, the channel for the most good and the most benefit for the planet and, and to use whatever platform that we have now in the most beneficial way for humanity. Amen, sister. Yeah. I agree with you. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much for answering those. So we've kind of wrapped up the shakedown now, and now we're going to get a little bit more into delving into 
Denise, in your personal experiences and what's been going on most recently, the release of the Ace of Cups first studio album. And like um, we said in the introduction, it's an astounding 24 track (laughs) (laughs) project, which is outstanding. And I really loved that you still treated it kind of like a concert and the fact that you had a live concert intro and a live concert outro. Right. That was fun and clever. And it led me to think, okay, again, I think it's kind of unconventional, which reminds me of Ace of Cups in general. But was the process of recording and bringing everybody together and how the public is receiving you, is this all going about how you would have expected or were there some surprises along the way? Well, first of all, I never expected and none of us ever expected that we would ever get to do this. So that's the first I mean, it didn't happen in the 1960s and it never happened in all of the intervening years that we got to go into a studio and record our music. So who would think it would happen 50 years later, right? So everything about that is unexpected and miraculous to us. That said, we're also not that experienced in studio work. I mean, I had done some, I'd done some recording in the intervening time and played bass. I'm a bass player too in the band. So I, I played bass on a number of people's albums and things, but I have you know, to go in with our own music, that's a whole different thing. And Dan Shea, our producer, is brilliant. And he really kind of took us gently and carefully and firmly and with great patience and and love and devotion to the music really moved us through this process. And And you had a lot of guests. We had a lot of guests. And that was really fun. We only wanted guests who we were really directly connected with. Either we played with them in the old days or toured with them, or there was one degree of separation. For example, there was Steve Kimmock, say, who was, is younger than we are. And we, we were gone before he arrived in Marin County and played with a lot of our mutual friends. We, he was one degree off. He played with a lot of our friends. So, you know, Jerry Garcia's gone. And some of the other people that would have played on our album, for sure, if they were alive, are gone. And so the people who played with them, who we feel connected with, they played on the album and that was great. And then, you know, Bobby Weir, Taj Mahal, Buffy St. Marie, and Peter Coyote, some of the people who lead sang on this project are longtime, longtime friends of ours. Well, I think it's just great that the whole community got back together and supported each other because I know that that's what the San Francisco Bay scene was like in the 60s. Everybody supported everyone. And I think that's the most successful way to build a scene rather than it being competition, it's collaboration, which is one of our values as a foundation. It it kind of also had a little bit of a flair for me. I had to smile because I remember the Blues Brothers movie where they ran around all over the country finding their, you know, all of their band members saying we're putting the band back together (laughs) and it was such a (laughs) you know what I mean and it was such a sort of deal and I think it's kind of fun that that your team was able to pull that all together and especially for such a big project right and well and we have another double album coming out in a year so we and that album is pretty I would say it's three quarters done so we've been recording and, you know, it started out, we were going to record 12 songs and then it became 16 and then it became 21. And our amazing record label, George Bear Wallace is the president of High Moon Records. Every time we'd say, well, we're trying to decide whether we should do Simplicity or Gemini. And he goes, well, you, you have to do them both. And I said, well, you know, so that's how it grew and grew and grew and it's still kind of growing. So we'll have another double album out you know, a year or two, 18 months. Well, I guess that's... <laughs> we have a lot of music. Worth of songs. 
<laughs> All right. Speaking of Jerry Garcia having passed, and he was later on, obviously, in life, but you know, you and the other ladies in the band had all experienced losses of people who were young. Jimmy, Jimi Hendrix, Pigpen, Janis Joplin. When you were a young woman, how did you handle that or how did that affect you? Well, it was really sad. I mean, one of the closest people we lost was also Mike Bloomfield, Michael Bloomfield, because mm-hmm. he, the Electric Flag band was put together rehearsing in our house. And those guys were mentors of ours. And so when Michael died, actually, I was on the Nepali coast of Kauai with Bobby Weir at the time. And I had heard the news of, of Michael passing and you just look up in the stars and in the heavens and just go, oh no, this is just so sad and such a loss. And through the years, if you've lost friends in that way, you know, you can't help but wonder what would Jimmy be playing now? What would, where would Janice be now? You know, where would Jerry be now? And, uh, you know, the tragedy of those substances you know, and as there's more and more information coming out in the neuroscience of this, how the way certain people are so much more susceptible just because of their own neuroreceptors, not to mention their own psychological history to these substances. And I just wish there was more knowledge and understanding that could have diverted those things from happening and, and, right. and offered more options to some of those amazing musicians. Well, in a long time, no research was done because everything was just considered so off the table. Like, oh, this is bad or it's illegal. And and at the same time, it didn't mean that people were stopping the usage of drugs or alcohol. It just became underground. And I think nowadays we're seeing more progress in, in those areas, and I hope it continues. You too were somebody who was involved in the drug counterculture. In fact, I believe your nickname was Mary Microgram, which that's you, me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, you earned that when you uh, joined the Merry Pranksters. Am I right? That's true. And you were yeah. just a teenager at that time. Yeah, right? I was. I was eighteen. Mm-hmm. And your parents, showing obvious concern, decided it would be a good idea to admit you into the Mount Zion Hospital. And I'm just kind of curious. How did that stay affect your relationship with drugs and music? Well, I was on the bus for more than a year before that happened. And I had been taking LSD before that. So what happened was LSD started to get some really bad publicity. When I started taking it, it wasn't even illegal. Right. And then it was such a life-changing spiritual experience for me that I really was exploring the consciousness that it opened as we're a lot of the other pranksters and the dead. And so, you know, by a year and a half later, there was so much bad publicity about acid that my parents, not so much from what was actually happening, but their fears about what might be happening, tricked me into going to this hospital. And it was a, was a psych ward. That's not what I, they told me it was going to be, but it was. And, and I actually had to agree to stay because they couldn't legally keep me. But the laws were at that time, if you were under 21, your parents could go to court and try and get you admitted to a state mental hospital. I don't think they would have done that, but I kind of got that threat through the hospital. Like, you should stay here so they don't do that. So right. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll stay. As I knew I didn't want to go that route. And, and and didn't Ken Casey say he was going to try and come and bust you out? Yeah, he came to the hospital, you know, and thought it was sort of a one floor of the cuckoo's nest thing. And he was going to bust me out and he was going to send the hell's angels to get me out. And I was like, oh, you know, but by then I had agreed to stay and do some family therapy and kind of see if I could kind of calm things down in the family zone. And by then my deal with the hospital was that I had to have a job 
and I had had saved first and last month's rent to get out so I wouldn't be dependent on my parents at that point. Oh. And that was, it seemed reasonable. And my friend and mentor, Ralph J. Gleason, helped me get a job at uh, Fantasy Records at the time. It was owned by Max Weiss. He was the senior partner and uh, was over in the Mission District in San Francisco on Treat Street. And so I would leave the hospital every day and go on the bus and go to my job at Fantasy Records. And then I'd come back and sleep there at night. And I could go out and hear music if I went to. I just had to sign out and sign in. So it wasn't like I was just in there full time. And I worked at Fantasy and, and John Fogarty was the only other young employee there. And he worked in the record packing room, sending out LPs. And I, and I ran the office and his, his band was Credence Clearwater. I mean, later at the time it was called the Gollywogs. So I stayed at that point out of this agreement that I made. And while I was in the hospital, a woman who was the occupational therapist there said, you should go up and meet this guy on the top floor. Oh, and by the way, I had by then in the room, a couple of amps full. I had a piano and the keyboard in there. I had <laughs> my guitars in there. I had totally like renovated this room in the hospital to be a total hippie den. And so, you know, anybody who came in there with beads hanging everywhere. So this occupational therapist, said, you should meet this guy on the top floor. And I went up to meet him and he was Ambrose Hollingsworth who had managed Quicksilver Messenger Service and had been in a terrible car accident and was recovering his capacities after becoming a, a paraplegic. Right. And he was a poet and mystic. And we started writing to, he wrote poems and I started setting his poems to music. And it was while I was still in the hospital is when I went out to a party on New Year's Eve of 1966 to 1967 and met Mary Ellen Simpson playing guitar in a bedroom upstairs at Blue Tears house. And she invited me to come over and meet some women that she was playing with. And so if I hadn't been in the hospital, I don't know that any of these things would have happened. And my life sort of has that energy sometimes, like think something that seems to be a limitation is almost often a doorway. Right. And so I met the Asicops while I was still in the hospital. Then I brought them all to meet Ambrose and Ambrose asked to be our first manager and showed us the tarot card. That was our name. That all happened while I was in the hospital. That is just such an incredible story. <laughs> right. I mean, and inspirational, especially for people who may be afraid to make a move like that if they feel they need professional help. I mean, you just don't know what's going to come of it. And it, I don't know, it just, it gives you that hope that yes, you come out on the other side and all kinds of amazing things can happen. And you know, the other thing about LSD at that time, and if you read, I'm just in the middle of Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which is a really interesting history and current exploration of, of the world of psychedelica and drug policy too. And you know, that's during the Vietnam War and people were getting drafted and the government knew, I mean, that if people took LSD, they, guys, they would not go to war. Right. And that was so, you know, the demonization of, of psychedelics had a lot to do with the mind control that the government wanted because the government did the first experiments with those substances. And, you know, the first experiments, that's how Kesey got turned on to psychedelics was a government program. That's right. So the fact that that psychedelics, which really showed a lot of promise in so many ways in early legal experimentation, got shut down. You know, that was a political move. That right. was, you know, you want to just keep people so you can just draft them and send them off to war. And, and if their consciousness expands, they are not going to happily do that, you know? 
and aside from the LSD, you started looking into other forms of conscious expansion. And exactly. one of those through, through meditation and eventually through yoga. And I really do want to touch on that because right now you're kind of a superstar in the yoga field. You've been doing this for decades. You've become an instructor. You've had celebrity clients such as Madonna and Jane Fonda come in. Was this something that you saw as an outcome of your studies or did it happen unexpectedly? My mother practiced yoga and there were yoga books around my house growing up. And so the physical parts, I would like, you know, look at a picture in a book and go, I can do that, you know, and put my foot here or my arm there or twist into some shape. So that was kind of always a fun little party game for me. I found a meditation teacher when I was 15 who lived in my neighborhood, eventually became very well known and started has the big Hindu temple on Kauai. He's now passed away, but I used to go down and, and meet with him and he would show me practices. So that was always there for me, you know, and I studied sitar during the Ace of Cups with the Nikhil Banerjee. I studied Indian music with a really wonderful teacher during the Ace of Cups years and played sitar for a while in the Ace of Cups. So all of that was there for me from when I kind of for as long as I can remember. But I think, you know, at the end of my really active LSD period, I was really looking for how do we you know, access that kind of consciousness with just ourselves so that it doesn't wear off or you don't come down and you're just able to dwell in that expansion. So that's really led me deeper into yoga. But it was always a personal practice. When I moved to LA, which was in 1983, to go to music school, because I had transferred sort of from guitar to bass and I just wanted to jumpstart my bass playing and move it up faster. So I just started practicing yoga at a local place because I had moved from Kauai where I surfed every day and I couldn't do that in LA, living in Hollywood, going to school. And so there's a musician's institute is like in deep Hollywood. So I was like, okay, I need to find something I can do every day. So I feel physical, you know, not just sit in a little cubicle with a bass. So I started going to Bikram's yoga classes, which were close by mm -hmm. relatively for LA. And pretty soon Bikram asked me to start teaching there. So it just, that happened. And then when he would get calls to do privates with people, which he didn't do. You know, he would, he said, you have to go up and work with Quincy Jones. He wants a private and I, I don't do that. So he just sort of started directing me to work with people. And I never set out to do that. And, you know, later I was teaching Ashtanga yoga, you know, with Madonna and with Jane Fonda and people like that. I, I mean, I never advertised or anything. It was just people word of mouth kind of found out. And then, you know, music was on the back burner. I had a teenage daughter at the time and I didn't want to be out at night and I couldn't quite figure out how to gig or travel and be a good mom as I was a single mom. Right. And um, so yoga teaching really helped because I could do it during the day while she was in school and I could be home in the evenings with her. Right. And when you worked with these other women who are in the entertainment industry and obviously a very male dominated industry, did y'all get a chance to swap some stories? Yes. Yeah. I had really wonderful talks with Madonna because I worked with her over you know, a few couple of years and also with Jane and, you know, with Madonna, I mean, she's such a amazing discipline focused person. I get that um, from her. That, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I worked with her three days a week, basically for a couple of years and she was never late. Mm -hmm. And at one time she was a few minutes late and it was the night that her friend Versace, right. That mm. had been killed. 
Right. And but she would be up all night working on her album. That time she was working on the Ray of Light album. And so I was, you know, taught her some Sanskrit and translated some things for her so she could do the Ashtanga chant on her album. And she was she'd be up, you know, late into the night recording and she'd be there to do her yoga practice in the morning. She was amazing. And I love yeah. to hear again about the collaboration. Right. It's you know, again, it's the women helping the women. Your life, you've had an unconventional path and a lot of other women may be out there wanting to do an unconventional path and they're getting a lot of negative feedback to that or being told that they have no direction or they don't know what they're doing. Would you have advice for women who are trying to make a change or want to make a change that others may think is crazy or are off the charts? I think it's really important to keep in your life the things that rock your soul. And those things may or may not be your livelihood. I mean, we still don't know if our music will, you know, we're touring this summer, but, you know, then we're really doing that a lot with the support of our record label. We wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. But I think whatever you need to do to pay the bills and, you know, keep the roof over your head or whatever those things you need, you need to do that. But also in there, you want to nourish that part of you that loves something, whatever that is. And don't, put it so far in the back burner that you think, well, if I can't do it for a living, I can't even focus on it. I can't bring it into my life. And I think that's really important to, first of all, honor those things that rock your soul yes. and know that, you know, there's a lot, you know, some people that I like can't, you know, just like, I don't know, I can't find anything, you know, like, so it's like finding that place in yourself. What is it that I love to do? And, you know, it could be walking in nature. It could be making some ceramics. It could be, you know, writing a poem or it could be, you know, drumming in a drum circle, whatever those things are. And I think that's a huge playground of what's possible. You want to find those things and then just include them in your life. And there may be times where you have to, you don't get to do it as much as you want or devote as much as you want to it. But then, you know, also you want to say, look, you know, I have the choice tonight of watching a TV show or, you know, pulling out that banjo that I I want to learn to put it on the front burner enough to just don't put it in the closet, you know, just pull it out. I'm just going to, you know, half an hour a day in on that thing that I love. I think in our lives with the Ace of Cups, we all kept playing music and it wasn't always on the front burner. And a lot of times we had to do other things to, to pay the bills, but we kept playing. And then things came around with these opportunities that if we hadn't nourished that, those seeds and nourished those little plants and those little blossoms of what we loved, I don't know what happened. So I, that, I really, that's my advice is nourish that place inside you, no matter, and don't let anybody dissuade you from that. We all appreciate those words of wisdom. And I think a lot of us need to feel the confidence to be able to practice that more. And, you know, it's fun because here you are again, about 50 years after your heyday and you've recorded an album, you're recording a second album and you're getting ready to go on tour, which again, you don't hear this very often about <laughs> women who are in their, you know, 60s, 70s, and, 70s and 80s. My drummer is 75. I mean, that's incredible. That's incredible. She is amazing. All of you are so amazing. Well, what we're going to do is in our show notes on our website, backstagechats.com, we're going to have links to your tour dates and to your albums and to your playlists and everything else so that people get all of the information they could possibly want for supporting the band Ace of Cups and supporting you, Denise. And I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today and sharing your stories. And like I keep saying, your unconventional path 
And we do really, really wish you the best in all of your upcoming endeavors. Thank you so much, Thea. Thanks for all the work you do to elevate women and connect us because that's really powerful and potent, especially in these times. Yes, indeed it is, especially (laughs) in these times. And what I'd like to end each show with is that the reason we love ladies like you is because you remind us to be dreamers, to be rule breakers, and to unleash our inner rock star. Thank you again so much for showing up. And we will keep our eyes out for you on tour. And good luck to you and the ladies on everything that you have coming up in the next year. Thank you so, so much. Take care. And that's a wrap. Hit the subscribe button and never miss an episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. This podcast is a production of the Backstage Chats Foundation, a nonprofit that is on a mission to eliminate gender disparity in the music industry by amplifying the voices and careers of women in music. You can make a difference by donating to the cause. Visit backstagechats.com and click the donate button today.